your Bibles, we'll be in Job, the book of Job again, chapter 6. The book of Job, chapter 6. And I'm only going to read the first four verses just to enter our time in to God's Word. As you're sitting here and you're uh, turning to, the, to your the place in the Bible, I love that song, especially with the book of Job, because these are truly ancient words. <laughs> like, I, I can't even, like, it's hard to fathom 2,000 years ago that these words were still read, and then you think back 4,000 years ago, these words were still read, and they're ancient words, long preserved, and here we are reading them. And so, praise be to God that he does this with his word, that we can read it here this morning. So let's go ahead and I'll, I'll read it, uh, Job chapter 6, starting in verse 1. We'll read down, I'll read down to verse 4. Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed, and all my calamity laid in the balances. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash, for the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Let's pray. Father, you're so good. And I'm just reminded right now that your word, long preserved, Lord, you, your word goes out, as the prophet Isaiah says, and it goes out and it produces fruit. And Lord, to the watching world and to the heart of an unbeliever, it means nothing. But Lord, as we sow your word right now, I pray that, it, the, that the fruit would reap a hundredfold. Lord, as we study this book, as we seek to understand what you have for us here this morning, may we be formed, our hearts be formed on the anvil of your word. So make us hearts, that give us hearts that are pliable, that are moldable, that are formable for your word, we pray. Help us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title for today is A Response to Christless Wisdom. And that's, yeah, a response to Christless Wisdom. A cross-centered response. Now you can pull that picture up, Brandon. Now I want to ask you, that's why I like kind of starting sometimes this way. What do you think this image is of? I mean, okay, this is of a shadow, but what do you think it's actually representing? You don't have to actually answer if you, unless you really want to. Go for it. What do you think it's of? Like a piano? It looks just like a piano, doesn't it? But if you look at it and you think, like, it's a shadow. So we know, when we know this, we know that the object is not probably, it might be a piano. looks just like a piano. Go ahead and show the next image. This is what it actually is of. It's of a fence. But it looks just like a piano, right? Go to the next one. I like this next one. And it's not, this one's kind of weird, because I had to cut some of it off because you could see what the object was. But it looks kind of like an ape, right? Like you can kind of see an ape standing there, right? But look at what the image is of, the object is of. It's of just two girls walking along. And again, these are just two. There's a bunch of them if you look them up on the internet. Uh, but it's, I think it's really interesting because the shadow looks, looks completely different than the object itself. And now I've been saying this over and over again in Job, that Job, the book of Job, is like a shadow. 
So in order for us to understand what Job's trying to get to us, we need to understand the object. This is why when people read the book of Job, they look at it and they're like, look, look a gorilla, or look a piano. It's because they don't know the object. And we know that the object is Christ. We live, on a, we live in such a, a manner in time that we know the object that the writer is talking about, and that's Christ. So I want you to see this today. If you're taking notes, I hope you are, because there's a, there's, a, there's a bunch of them t- this morning. Um, I don't have mine up here, but that's okay. Um, that cross, I want you to see this, that cross-centered wisdom. So last week we looked at crossless wisdom. This week we're going to look at cross-centered wisdom. That cross-centered wisdom seeks to present the greatness, goodness, and grace of God to sinners and sufferers in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, last week, if you remember, uh, we, we just listened to Job's, friends, El- Job's friend Eliphaz. Eliphaz the elder, the old guy, right? He was the guy who came and was hinting at Job. Job, I, I, think, you've, I think you've sinned in some way. He didn't come out and say it, but this is what he's appealing to Job. He's appealing to him that, Job, I think you might have sinned. This is why this, all this calamity has come upon you. But he continued to appeal to him, the innocent never suffer in this life. That's not how life works. And now we're going to listen to Job's response to him. And he starts, if you're taking notes, there the, the monologue of despair. This first section, Job's actually not really even addressing anyone. He's more or less just talking to himself. He's talking, he's monologuing. And it's the voice of despair. Now, I want you to remember what Job and Job's friends Eliphaz said in the, in the previous verse, and I'll just put that up here for you. You don't have to turn there. But Job 5.2, this is what Eliphaz said to him, just to give us some context. He says, surely vexation, or grief, that is, kills the fool, and jealousy slays the simple. So this is what he said to him. He says, Job, you shouldn't be having this kind of grief. He, he calls him a fool because he's allowed this grief and anguish to rise up in him. And now listen to what Job's response to him is. And I hope you can see, you're starting to see by now, that when suffering hits us, we're not meant to respond with, oh, that's okay, I'm a Christian. We're meant to have grief and anguish. Listen to what he says in, in Job. This is his response to Eliphaz. He says, oh, the, and I'm going to be reading, just so we're clear, from a bunch of different versions today of the Bible. So if, you, if you're reading your version of God's Word, and it's like, that's not at all what it says. It's because I have a different version. Okay, so it's up here on the screen if you want it. But he says, oh, that my grief or vexation were fully weighed, and my calamity laid with it on the scales. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. And Job's simply just saying here that he wishes his grief and his anguish that it was put all on a scale. And then all of the sand of the sea was laid on the other side. And he's saying that all that I've experienced, it would be heavier than that. It would be heavier than all of the sand in the sea. And so for Eliphaz to say, you're a fool for having this kind of grief, Job's saying, no, 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 no. I am right for having this type of grief, this type of anguish. Listen to another, just another translation. It says, if my misery could be weighed and my troubles be put on a scale, they would outweigh all the sand of the sea. That is why I spoke impulsively. 
And Job's essentially saying, just weigh it. Weigh my grief, weigh my anguish, weigh my anxiety, all that I've been feeling, and it would be actually heavier than all the sand in the sea. And I want you to see then the, the cry to weigh, weigh suffering. The cry to weigh suffering. It's discouragement abounding. Now, I couldn't find the origin of this example, but I want to give you an example or an illustration. There's a, there's a legend of a man who found the barn where Satan kept all his seeds that he would sow to people, okay? There, there were all sorts of seeds. There were anger, there were lust, there were greed, there were fear, bitterness, jealousy, deceit, all sorts of different seeds. But as the man looked around the barn, there was one particular type of seed that was overabundant. It was the most amount that Satan had. Can you guess which seed it was? Discouragement. When he inquired, then he asked, the, guy, the, the proverbial legend says, that he asked his guide, why are these seeds here? And he basically says that these seeds can grow in pretty much every heart, except for the thankful heart. And I, I, found, I found that illustration very, very helpful because essentially, as C.S. Lewis would say, if Satan's arsenal of weapons were restricted to a single one, it would be discouragement. He has, think about all that has happened to Job thus far. We've seen his property taken. We've seen his children taken. We've seen everything taken from him. Now his physical health, and that it seemingly didn't really bother him that bad. But now, the rest of the book is really going to be laying out his friends coming to him, discouraging him. And this is the weapon that Satan's just going to continue to beat Job with, is just discouragement. And we're starting to see it actually take hold a little bit. It appears that this is Satan's last weapon for Job, and it's the singular weapon of discouragement that attacks the very center of a person. It leaves them without hope. But listen to the reason why Job says this. Look in verse 4. He says, he answers why he's so heavy right now. And he says in verse 4, he says, For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Job, he, Job is essentially saying that his heavy misfortune has come upon him because God has attacked him in that way. Now, he's, 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 he's very much so disoriented, which is what discouragement does to a person. But listen to I love what one author said. He feels, this is what he says, he says he feels that he is no longer in an I-thou relationship. But it, yeah, he feels that he's no longer in an I-thou relationship with God, but it is an I-it relationship. God acts toward him as though he were merely target practice. And we can see this in other places in Scripture. In Psalm 88, like, like Isaiah read this morning, he says, Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me. And the psalmist seems to be experiencing something very similar. And the experience is God's wrath resting upon him. And this is why he feels unbearable. It's why his life is unbearable. It's why, it's why his situation doesn't make any sense. It's completely confusing because he feels as though God's wrath is literally resting upon him. I love what another commentator said. He said, the seeming needlessness of their suffering. That's anyone who's suffering. The impossibility of tracing these to any cause in their past history. 
In a word, the mystery of the pain confounds the mind and adds to anguish and desolation and unspeakable horror of darkness. And this is exactly where Job is finding himself and now defending himself to his supposed friends. Remember also what Eliphaz has told Job. This is in another place. So that's, that's the cry of the, to, to be weighed of the, of the suffering. But this is what Eliphaz also said to him in another place. He says, Is not your reverence your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Now, Eliphaz has told him, he's reminded him, he said, Job, your confidence before the Lord is your piety. That's why you should be, that's why you should be confident before the Lord, because you're pious. You're a churchgoer. You're someone who's, you're a good man. But listen to what he says about that. This is Job's response then to Eliphaz, talking to himself. He says, don't I have a right to complain? Don't wild donkeys bray when they have no grass and the ox bellow when they have no food? Don't people complain about unsalted food? Does anyone want the tasteless white of an egg? My appetite disappears when I look at it. I gag at the thought of eating it. And Job's saying, I've been wounded by God, and all you guys have come and done is given me the tasteless food of your advice. But I want you to see what he's about to start asking for is something we need to take a look at. And he's going to start asking that the Lord remove his life from him. And I want you to see this as the cry of the tortured. The cry of the tortured. And it's just ended. The cry of the tortured. Listen to what he says in verse 8 and 9. He says, oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope. Here's his hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Job can't imagine anything would relieve him of the pain that he's experiencing. And the only hope he has right now in his life is, Lord, just get rid of me. Just crush me. Just finish me off. And I want you to ask the question, why? Why is this his hope right now? Why is Job pressed in such a place? Now, in some war movies, there's typically a scene, sometimes, sometimes in some movies, where an enemy will be captured. And in, in, those, in those places, you would see what they would do is they would torture them. And I'm thinking about, um, trying to think of the movie right now, but it's escaping me. But there's one particular torture scene movie that I'm thinking about. And they're just trying to get information out of them, right? They're trying to get them to break. And like we see in the mover, movies, when the prisoner's at their wit's end, that's the picture I want you to see here of Job. That's where he's at. He's the guy who's sitting here saying, I'm, I feel as though I'm the one being tortured just get rid of me. Lord, Lord, let me, let me die. Why? Because if he doesn't die, he feels as though he's going to curse God and die. His fear is that he's going to do what his wife has urged him to do, curse God and die. And he's saying, I'd rather die. I would rather die than curse God and die. Listen to what he says. He said, this would be my comfort. Verse 10 I would even exalt in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. This prisoner who's been mercilessly mercilessly tortured fears the moment that he's going to curse God and die. He fears that. And I want you to see, he's he's pushing towards something. And I I have this quote, but it's a super long one, so we're going to skip that one. Thanks, guys. Sorry. So I want you to see this next part is the cry for strength. This is where he's at. 
the cry for strength, verses 11 through 13. It's utter weakness, the cry for strength. Listen to what he says. He says, what strength do I have that I should still hope? What prospects that I should be patient? Do I have the strength of stone? Is my flesh bronze? Do I have any power to help myself now that success has been driven from me? Job is saying, essentially, physical strength is of no use to me. I have no more. I am, I, am, I am about to collapse under the weight of all that I'm experiencing. But you know what's really interesting in this whole big first section? It's not as much what Job is saying. Picture that shadow like we saw at the beginning. That's what we're get, seeing right now. We're seeing the picture of the shadow but we need to see the the form, the substance for what Job is asking for. And what we'll see in the rest of this book is Job is going to continue to ask for something. He's going to ask, right now he's asking for death, but he's going to be asking for something, and it's God himself. He's, He's asking, he's longing, he's desiring just like the shadows. That's that's what he's doing. He's longing for something, which is where we get to the cross. He's longing, and what we'll see, he's longing for God himself to show up. He's, and here, we're going to start seeing it far more overtly here soon. But this is what he's asking for. He's saying, Lord, you show up. That's the only thing that's going to satisfy me. And then I want you to see that cross-centered wisdom presents the greatness of God. This is, this is the aspect that Job is desperately yearning for. He's desperately yearning for a greatness. In this moment, his eyes are only focused inward. He's discouraged. He's, he's, let me listen to the words that he's saying. And what he needs is a grand picture of God. Psalm 119.50 says, This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. And in this moment, Job can't even see that promise. He can't even see any comfort. And his only comfort is he's saying, just let me go. Just, just kill me. His discouragement is crushing in on him, and he desires for it to be alleviated. Now we see, when we turn to the New Testament, we see a picture of the Lord Jesus in greatness. And I just want to give you one instance of it. The disciples, there was an instance when they were on the boat together. Jesus encouraged his disciples. He said, he, when, and he got into a boat. This is uh, Matthew eight twenty three through 27. He says, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the, by the waves. But he was asleep. And in that moment, just picture, these were seasoned fishermen. These were men that knew what they were doing. And Jesus, he's asleep in the boat. Listen to what they say to him. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. So again, not at all in the extreme that Job is experiencing, but he's crying out, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. This is what he says to them. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose, rebuked the waves and the sea, the winds and the sea, And there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? 
here's the thing I want you to see, is that when, in the moments of discouragement and despair, what Job is yearning for, he's longing for, is a great picture of God. The only, and we're going to see this over and over and over and over again. Because God's not going to answer Job's questions at the end of this book. This is very striking. He never answers his questions. He simply shows up and gives him an experience similar to this. And he says, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? Because we serve a Savior whose greatness surpasses all we could ever hope or dream. So that's his monologue. That's that first section. Uh, go back with me if you're... Uh, if you're looking uh, back to verse 14 of Job chapter 6. And in this section, we're going to see him addressing the friends. He's going to address them more specifically. He's addressing the friends. Religious wisdom brings no comfort. Now remember what they've been telling him. Eliphaz has been telling him. They're saying, you've sinned. That's why all this calamity has come upon you. And Job's essentially saying, no, no, that's not true. That hasn't happened. But listen to what Job says to them. He, he, this is his analysis of his friends. He says, he who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Hear that again. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes fear of the Almighty. And he's essentially saying that you, your obligation toward me ought to be that of kindness. And when you don't give me kindness, it shows that you really don't fear God. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, ultimately, if you really fear God, you would honor your covenant friendship with me and support me in my suffering. Crossless wisdom shows itself to operate outside of the fear of God. Eliphaz is shocked that Job's fear of God doesn't sustain him in suffering. And Job is bothered because Eliphaz is not being the kind of friend he needs to be. Here's here's how you could describe Eliphaz. And I'm going to give you several words. The first is undependable. He is undependable, like a dry riverbed. Now, this is something in the Middle East, what's called a wadi. Okay, that's an Arabic word. It essentially just means a dry riverbed. And during rainy seasons, uh, what, what would happen, so this is what it would look like the majority of the year. But in rainy seasons, what would actually happen is there'd be rain pretend out in the mountains somewhere. And it would be dry where you would be at. So it would be the middle of day, the middle of summer, and this is what it would look like. And then all of a sudden, with no rain, with no prediction of it, you would see a raging river. It's because the mountains would produce all this water, all this, the snow would melt. And that's literally what Job is saying of his friends here. He's saying in verse 15, But my brothers are as un- undependable as an intermittent stream as the streams that overflow when darkened by thawing ice and swollen with melting snow, but that stop flowing in the dry season. He's, he's essentially saying to them, when I needed you most, right now I need you most, and you're like that dry riverbed. I'm going there for help, and that's what you're doing to me. You're, the, you're like that parched dry land. But when I don't need you, you're raging. You're a raging river. And his whole point is simply, you're here to help when I don't need you. But right when I need you, which is right now, you're nowhere to be found. And brothers and sisters, this is exactly what the prosperity gospel does for us. In moments that we don't need it, in moments that we think, oh, I don't really need all this prosperity, but it it offers us essentially hollow promises that, that never ultimately satisfy. And it's undependable. It's unhelpful. That's the next thing I want you to see. 
It's unhelpful. The prosperity gospel was essentially what Eliphaz was telling Job. And he says it's also unhelpful as disappointed customers. And he basically now gives an example of, of travelers that had come along the way. This is what he says in verse 18. He says, the path of their way turn aside. They go nowhere and perish. The caravan of Tema, the travelers of Sheba, hope for them. But they're disappointed because they were, because they were confident. They come there and are confused. Basically, he's saying that there are these people who, Tema and Sheba would have been the two like traveling places that people would have come to for trade. And he says, they come there for water and they're disappointed and they perish. Verse 21, he says, for you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. And he's basically saying that when I needed you most, you all have betrayed me. When I was most in need of life-giving refreshment, you withheld it. So they're unpredictable, or yeah, they're undependable, they're uncaring, or unhelpful, and they're also uncaring. And he's asking, just be my friend. Just be my friend. And he asks in verse 22, he says, have I said, make me a gift? Or from your wealth, offer me a bribe? Or deliver me from the adversary's hand? Or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless? He's basically saying, I haven't asked anything of you guys. And you guys are coming with just telling me garbage, and it's not helpful. But he's not being proud in it. Listen to even what he says in verse 24. It's welcomed counsel. He's still saying, just show me. Show me where I've sinned. He says in verse 24, teach me, and I'll be quiet. Show me where I've been wrong. How painful are honest words. But he's saying, give me the honest words. In verse 25, he says, but what do your arguments prove? Nothing. They're not showing him where he sinned. They're not saying any of this. And he's basically saying, stop beating around the bush. Just tell me where I've been wrong. And I want you to notice what a discouraged person starts to do. This is, this is again, these are the words of someone that discouragement is starting to seep into his being. I love what Stephen Lawson, he went on to say. He said, a discouraged person loses all sense of perspective. Choosing to believe the worst rather than the best. At the center of a discouraged heart is always an ungrateful spirit, one that has lost sight of God's blessing and focuses entire instead on the burdens. And what's crazy is these friends of his are coming and actually just pointing out more burdens. Rather than coming and being a comfort to him, they're coming to him and saying, yeah, I think, I think you could do better. I think you, you really screwed up somewhere. That's why this whole thing is happening to you. And what Job, again, what Job hungers for here, the shadow of what he's hungering for here is the goodness of God, is that the cross-centered wisdom for us who live on this side of the cross is to bring to them the goodness of God. It's what he's most hungering for. Job is longing to experience the goodness of God. He's longing and he's hungering to see God's goodness on display. Because when God is good, we don't have to look elsewhere. And that's what he's trying to see. But his friends only bring him rebuke and complaint. Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. And that's all Job is hungering for right now. He just wants answer. And we're about to see. Now he's, now he's going to address God directly. This last section. 
He's going to address God directly. And he's asking, what is man? What is man? Now, chapter 7 can be divided into two real sections. The first uh, goes from verses 1 to 6, and it's basically Job's lament. Job's lament. And he's lamenting, he's asking, why do I matter? Why do I matter? And you can hear, even in that question, the prayer of a discouraged man. Why do I matter? Listen to what he says in verse 1. Is not all human life a struggle? Our lives are like that of a hired hand, like a worker who longs for the shade, like a servant waiting to be paid. I too have been assigned months of futility, long and weary nights of misery. He's essentially saying, it would have been better for me to be a hired worker, one of my own hired workers, or a slave. At least the hired worker gets something from his labor. At least the slave gets to, gets to have the cool of the day. But none of this is true for me. That's essentially what he's saying. And you can hear Job crying out, why do I matter at all? Meaningless. Pointless. Listen to what he says in verse 4. He says, lying in bed, I think, when will it be morning? But the night drags on, and I toss till dawn. My body is covered with maggots and scabs. My skin breaks open and oozes with pus. My days fly faster than a weaver's shuttle. They end without hope. And if you have ever been in a situation where discouragement begins to seep in, Verse 4 there really, truly embodies your situation. Lying in bed, I think, when will it be morning? But the night drags on, and I toss till dawn. And this is exactly where Job is at. Worse yet, he actually has friends who are standing by his bedside and trying to blame it on him. But then he moves out, so that's his lament, but he also moves out. The rest of the passage is going to be his prayer. And his prayer is actually one that we would be kind of surprised by, but it's simply this, leave me alone. Just leave me alone. Job's Job's prayer is marked by several aspects, and I want you to see them all in turn. The first is brevity. He's like smoke. Listen to what he says, verse 7. He says, remember, O God, that my life is but a breath. My eyes will never see happiness again. The eye that now sees me will see no longer. You will look for me, but I will be no more. As a cloud vanishes and is gone, so one who goes down to the grave does not return. And he's saying, I'm, I'm like a breath, Lord. I am, I'm meaningless. I'm nothing. I have, I have nothing. I'm like smoke. Here for a minute and gone. And gloom. The second piece is gloom. And he's loathing life. And you can hear just the, the cry of a, of a discouraged man. He says, therefore, in verse 11, he says, therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Now, I want you to notice something in verse 11. It's very, very important. It says the difference of complaining and cursing. Okay, complaining, which is what Job is doing, keeps the faith even when understanding the situation is far off. It keeps the faith. He's clinging. And we would hear verse 11, we're like, is this guy even a believer? Is this guy even regenerate? Like, is this guy even right in the right in saying that? And it's the difference of complaining and cursing. Complaining keeps the faith, 
even while the understanding of the situation is far off. Well, cursing is the rejection of the faith. Listen to what he goes on and asks in verse 12. He says, am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions. He's literally saying, even when I try to sleep, it's still there. My mind is even, even doing these things to me. And he's, he's complaining, but he's complaining vertically like we've seen. But again, as we've seen with Job and the way he's responding to Eliphaz, he's not simply, we, we shouldn't just simply see Job, which is the shadow, and not see the substance to which he's pointing. And it's oftentimes in the questions that he asks that we see the beauty of what he's asking. And he asks in verse 17, what is man? Here's the question he has. He has a question, and it's this, what is man? And he's asking, please look away. Listen to what he says in verse 17. What is man that you make so much of him, and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? And again, if you've ever been one who sat in discouragement, you recognize what Job is saying. And Job is horrified at the reality that God makes so much of mankind. But here's the thing we can't miss. Job is also prophetic. So if we simply just look at Job, this is why people have looked at the book of Job and said, this book's weird. This book's really weird. Because they don't have a vision of the cross. Where Job is asking, what is man? Why do you make so much of him? Why do you set your heart on him? And it's a disgust. David later picks up and looks at it as a wonder. And we're starting to see the progression of the biblical story. In Psalm 8, I want you to see this. Psalm 8. Now he's looking at the heavens. Now listen to what he says. He says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Here's the question. Same question. What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? What David's finding amazing, he's literally saying, I see the beauty of your creation, and then I look at man and I wonder, in wonder and amazement, what is man that you're mindful of him? What David finds awe-inspiring, Job feels he will perish over. And again, we need to see the nature of, of, of prophecy, what he's doing here. He's asking, Lord, Lord, why not just look away from me? And then David starts to see what amazing thing that God even looks on humanity at all. But then the authors of Hebrews, I want you to turn real quick to Hebrews chapter 2, because I want you to see this. That Job is not just talking about Job. That Job is pointing us forward to one who's coming, who's the greater man. He's the greater Adam. He's the one who will come and suffer for us. And the thing that Job is hungering for in this section is cross-centered wisdom. It presents the grace of God, which is exactly what we see the authors do later. Hebrews 2, this is what he says. Now, this is what the author of Hebrews is saying. He says, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And then he quotes from Psalm 8. He says, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him. 
And he goes on quoting it. He says, you've made him a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Okay, so he's quoting, he's picking up what, what, what Job has said, now what David has said, and now he's going to apply it to who? To the Lord Jesus himself. And I want you to see the, the connection between what Job is saying, what David's saying, and now what we see what Jesus has done and said. And he says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That is the story of Job right there. That we do not yet see everything in subjection to God. But he says in verse, verse uh, 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Why? Why was he crowned with glory and honor? Now we're seeing the connection of Job to David, now to the Lord Jesus himself. Listen at it, what he says. He's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Do you see that? Do you see the connection there? He's saying This is the death. Because he suffered the death, he's crowned with glory and honor. He's willing to go to death on our behalf. So so that, verse 10, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Job is a mystery in this sense. If we just live in the book of Job, we will look at this and be like, what is he talking about? This is what I should do when I suffer? No, 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 no. Brothers and sisters, this is what we do when we suffer. That we look at the one who, because of suffering of death, has been crowned with glory and honor, so that the grace of God might, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting, verse 11, or verse 10, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things existed, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And you know, the thing that Job continually asks for, the thing he continually longs for, is that God just come here and answer me. And it's in the cross of Jesus Christ that God himself comes down and he answers us. And he suffers on our behalf. So all these questions of Job, all this suffering that Job is is doing, so anybody you know that ever suffers, any suffering you ever experience, We can look and we can see the one who has perfectly suffered for sinners. And then he says in verse 11, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Jesus himself comes and he suffers perfectly on our behalf. And then because he's done this, he could call us brothers and sisters. And brothers and sisters, this is what Job, he doesn't know it. Again, it's like a shadow. He doesn't know this is what he's asking for. But he's desperately longing to see the greatness of God, the goodness of God, and finally, he wants and longs to see the grace of God. And apart from these things, these things will crush him. And we're just going to see it over and over again in this book, that Job is just going to continually ask, Lord, just come and answer me. And it's in the cross of Jesus Christ that we see that answer come. I want you to consider, I want us to pause now, and I want us to just consider what we've heard. Like I said, I, I've said this before, and I'll, I'll just continue to say it. The book of Job is really hard. It's hard for me to preach. It's hard for me to study. It's very gloom. But I want you to see just the prophetic nature, that, that this is something that, that God is, it wasn't an accident for the Lord Jesus. 
that he, this was actually the plan of God, that he would send the Son, that he would send the Lord Jesus to suffer death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And brothers and sisters, this is how we're brought into the family. This is how we're brought into the kingdom. And this is how we sustain in the kingdom. So when suffering strikes us, we know the path to look at the greatness of God, to look at the goodness of God, and finally to look at the grace of God. I want us just to pause now and consider what we've heard. And as you think about considering it, I want you to consider maybe some of your own wisdom. And again, I know if you're not in a season of suffering, the book of Job will really feel like it's kind of going over my head. But if you find yourself in a season of suffering, this book will be great comfort to you. But if, I think what I'm more concerned about is for all of us, because we're all counselors. We're all ones who give wisdom. And I just want us to consider, even in our own wisdom, how, how maybe we, we've kind of strayed from this cross-centered wisdom that presents the greatness of God and the goodness of God and the grace of God. I just want us to consider that for a moment. Just pause and consider that. Father, thank you that, Lord, unlike Job, we are those who live on this side of the cross. That, God, we are ones who, who don't live in, in the mystery. You say that the cross was a mystery revealed. And yet, Lord, that mystery has been made known to us. That we can actually be those who come and behold the wondrous mystery of God the Son suffering on behalf of sinners. God, we're, we're brought into your family through this suffering. Lord, that we are those who suffer along with a suffering Savior. So Lord, help us. May our wisdom be that of, of presenting the greatness and the goodness and the grace of God, of your grace and kindness in the face of Jesus Christ. Because all other wisdom, God, is just folly. Lord, as we see this picture of Job this week, I pray that we would consider it deeply. I pray that your wisdom would form your people and it would shape us in a way that I could never imagine, we could never imagine. Form us, we pray, shape us on the anvil of your word. We ask this, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.